An Air France A320 is doing a quick go-around to show off the aircraft when catastrophe occurs. What caused this plane to fly into the forest? Welcome back to the Heart Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And again, I don't get a proper introduction. My name is Brendan. <laughs> Welcome to the Hard Landings Podcast. <laughs> Brendan's here too. Brendan back. His snippets last time made me laugh when I listened to the episode, so we had him back because he makes everyone laugh. And he's actually got some subject matter to bring to us today. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end. Yeah, I think this is a good thing to add, and I would like to maybe do this more often. Agreed. Cool. Chickadee check. All right. We already did our chickadee check. Yes. What are we covering today, Nick? <laughs> so today we are covering Air France Flight 296. So I know a little bit about this flight. I know it was a test flight for an Airbus of some kind, it was, and it crashed. Not quite a <laughs> It was test not flight. a test flight. But or it was, was it like a show-off flight? It was, like it was basically show? that, yes. Yeah. I know they crashed, and it was big, like horrible, and... Everyone saw it, and it was bad. But I don't know what happened. I just know that that's what happened, because I've seen the video before. Cool. We'll get into it. So this was an A320-100, the rare A320-100. Most A320s are 200s, or Neos these days. A320-100 had no winglets on the wingtips at all. They were just normal wings. This was the third one ever produced. It was. It had the tail number Foxtrot-Golf-Foxtrot-Kilo-Charlie. Did it start with an F because it's from France? Yes. Haha. That's why the United States starts with N. Oh, wait. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> the captain for this flight was Michel Asselin. He was 44. He had 10,463 hours total at the time of the accident. The first officer for this flight was Pierre Mazieri. He was 45 years old. He had 10,853 hours. Both of them were actually captains for Air France. Oh, hey, that sounds familiar. <laughs> the first officer in this case was both older and had more hours for this that flight. That also sounds familiar. I know. <laughs> yeah, you recorded your... your my Miranda sode. You wouldn't believe how many parallels. Very similar. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many parallels we're about to go through with your Miranda sode oh, from, from May. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many uncanny similarities are about to come from this incident to your Miranda sode. Plug for the Miranda sode. Yeah. Gotta be a... A $10 patron in order to hear Miranda Sode. So if you want to hear the similarities, you're going to have to be... In first class. In first class on our Patreon, which you should go to via the website or otherwise. Continue. Moving on. This flight had 130 passengers and six crew. It was a charter flight that was actually operating on behalf of air charters. Wait, it was at an air show, but it was actually a charter flight? It was. I'll get into that in just a moment. Oh, fancy. Mm-hmm. It was indeed. So this charter flight was to include flights over the Alps, but it was a charter flight that originated in Charles de Gaulle. It landed in Basel, and then it had two round trips in and out of Basel for sightseeing before it would return to Charles de Gaulle in Paris. And Basel is close to the Swiss border with France. So this flight was, the two round trips were sightseeing flights that would include going over the Alps, and included a flyby of the Habsheim Aerodrome, which is only about five minutes away from the airport in Basel. Which means airport. Yes, it's airport. It's just an old term for airport. 
didn't they also fly around a very particular mountain? Yeah, they were going to fly around Mont Blanc. Which Nick has climbed. I've almost, almost gotten to the top twice, but not done it. I'm almost impressed. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Tallest mountain in the Alps. This plane was to do the flyover at Habsheim at the start of each of the two round-trip sightseeing flights from Basel. The regional Air France delegation at Mulhouse, which was the airport in Basel, was acting as a contact between the organizer of the air show in Habsheim and the air carrier for the air charter. Air charter took charge of the commercial aspects, defining the general flight conditions, the route, the choice of the airplane per Air France's instructions, and preparing the contract for this flight. The technical preparation for the flight was undertaken by the... This is a hard one. Here we go. Use those years of French you took in high school. Oh, jeebus. Okay, here it is. The service ligne et région de la direction des opérations d'Air France. Okay, now I'm impressed. I know. <laughs> Isn't it just like the direction of France? Is that what It that is said? Air France's technical department. Okay. <laughs> I was like... Operations and technical department. Sounds pretty... So- Similar. Our French listeners are crying. Sorry, friends. Yeah. So, so anyways. Yeah, it was their line services, regional direction, uh, directorial and operation department, basically, for Air France. Who, per commercial requests, studied the conditions under which the flight was to be performed and prepared the technical file folder provided to the crew. According to the airline, the preparation was made in accordance with the DOND... 50420, which was just basically a document that lined up what Air France allows for maneuvers and operations of their airplanes. At air shows. At air shows. Specifically. So yep. were they actually supposed to be at that air show? Did, yep. but, or, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah, it was totally part of their plan. To it was, fly over the air show? Uh-huh. It had been, it had been, the organizers had set it up long, long, long in advance, actually. However... The preparation for this air show flight... For the actual flight. For the actual flight itself didn't begin until 48 hours before the flight. So the whole making the airplane get there and do the flight with the crew and what they were going to do, all that started 48 hours before the flight. I feel like that should happen a little bit more than 48 hours in advance. I'll get into it. Yeah. Great. That document, the the 50420, they use taking into account the obstacles... And with the planned low altitude flyover of runway 02 at Habsheim. This was not the runway they would end up using, and they didn't know that. On completion of the study, the file was provided to the crew that included an area map, a flight chart for the Habsheim airport, a visual landing chart for Habsheim airfield, and the scheduled flight plan, as well as copies of various messages they had with the organizers. So, remind me. I think my brain's just getting confused. Mm -hmm. Is that airport the one that was by the Swiss border that they were landing at? They were both, yeah, they were both right by the Swiss border. They're five minutes apart. The two airports are five minutes apart. They're not very far apart at all. They might as well be in the same city. And really go there to fly over the air show? So, yes. So they landed in Basel as their starting point for the round trip. They were going to go do the flyover, they were going to do two passes at the flyover. Then they were going to go up over the Alps for a sightseeing flight for a little while with their passengers and then come back to Basel and do it all over again. All right. That makes sense. Okay. really, the airport that they were doing the flyover at was more of an airfield. Yeah. So it had one asphalt runway that wasn't very long. It wasn't rated for the A320. And then it had two grass runways. 
It didn't matter because they weren't landing. Right. They were just doing a flyby on their way to go do some sightseeing and to show off the airplane. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank you. Yep. I found it interesting when they were talking about everything they provided to the crew that they included an area map. The area map was actually just literally a geographical map like you would have in your car of the area. And the reason they provided that to the crew was because the airport was not in the A320's systems, since it is not an A320 airport. It can't handle the A320. And so they provided that map to the crew because they needed to follow a highway between the two airports. So they needed to have that highway as a reference. So they literally used it to find the airfield. Yeah, they used it as a, as a reference guide for their flight. What this kit that was provided to them did not include was instructions either concerning the runway axis or the height of the flyby. So they hadn't planned that much out. They were relying on the crew to do that. On the day, June 26th, during the flight preparations, the crew became acquainted with the file, but no verbal comments were made to them about it. There was nothing at all. They were just handed the file, and that was it. They weren't told to what it was, what to study from it. No. I mean, they, they had the gist of where they were going and what they were doing, but this file was giving them all the documents they really needed for the rest of it. Then they had no verbal communication about it. The flight from Charles de Gaulle to Basel was normal. After a short stop, the aircraft departed shortly before 12.30 from Basel for the first round-trip sightseeing flight. For the first flight, the pilot in the left seat was the designated captain. That would be Michel Azalim. So the pilot... Asseline? The pilot flying was in the right seat? Is that what I took No, it was in that? the left seat. Yeah, left seat. Oh, okay. It was in the left seat. They were both captains, and this caused a problem. Was it a power struggle? It was not, no. Actually, there just was no distinct designation as to who was doing what. Crew right. resource management broke down because they were both captains, and while one was in the first officer's seat, this was such a unique situation that they hadn't decided who was going to do what functions. So right. they haven't decided who was monitoring and who was flying? They decided who was flying, and it was the captain in the left seat. Yeah, this, is, this is like what I took as like complacency. Like they both thought each other were handling the different tasks that they were supposed to. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They thought the other person was doing the task that they should have been doing type of thing. They well, didn't know who enough. was doing what. There's, Not really. I mean, I they, 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 they were just too comfortable in the cockpit. They, yeah. Both of them were captains with really high hours. They were both very so similar situations. They were overconfident, is what you're telling That's me. That's a good way to put it. Okay. In a way. Sure. Yeah. Like, in the abilities to fly the aircraft and such. They were overconfident yeah. they were, they were okay. both pilots. Let's put it this way. They were both captains, so they were both so experienced, and they knew the airplane inside and out, that really they didn't designate one person as the first officer. They just said, I'm pilot flying, you handle normal first officer duties, without them actually being the first officer in the flight. Yeah, that makes... That's it's bare yeah. expla- explanation. Yeah, it's kind of it was really kind of almost an unspoken thing. It was really just a we're in the cockpit, we're doing this thing together. Here's the plan. Okay. During the taxi for takeoff, the captain in the left seat, Michelle, uh, explained in detail his intentions for the flyby at Habsheim. The first pass would be a flyby at 100 feet with the landing gear down and flaps at setting three of four, so fairly extended. And a slow speed, which would be at alpha max, or the minimum speed with a high angle of attack without stalling the airplane. So very, very slow speed. The second pass would be a high speed, also at 100 feet. That seems really low. I guess it's probably good for a flyover, but... It is not. No? That is too low. 
I'll get oh. into it. I was going to say, it seems really low. The intention to make the two passes was transmitted to air traffic control by radio. Takeoff was at 12.41, so just before 1 p.m., followed by a right turn immediately to reach Habsheim, which would be about five minutes away. They ascended to an altitude of 2,000 feet, or about 1,000 AGL, above ground level. 2,000 would be, the 2,000 would be above mean sea level, so 1,000 feet above the ground, which was achieved at 12.42, so one minute after takeoff. <clears throat> Pretty easy to climb up 1,000 feet when you got rockets basically. During the level flight at 1,000 feet AGL, the autothrottle was disengaged to allow manual control of the thrust, at which point an alert about the landing gear being retracted sounded, as well as two signals that the airplane was below 1,000 AGL per the radio altimeter. The radio altimeter is basically a form of sonar altitude, so it, it pings off of the ground and tells them how high they actually are above the ground, and it's different than your barometric altitude. Which we've talked about in previous episodes, if anyone here is an avid listener. The radio altimeter would actually give you your AGL distance, your above ground level distance. And your barometric would give you above mean sea level. So they were getting these, these alerts, but they were expecting it anyways, because the airplane doesn't normally do these things. There was, like I said, a motorway, a highway, that was used as a visual reference for their track to find Habsheim, because the airport did not show up in the A320 system as it was too small, and it was not an airport that the A320 could operate at. At 12.44, the aircraft began descending toward the airport, which was only done once the crew had visual contact with the airport. So once they saw it, the engines were throttled back, the flaps in the landing gear were extended, the air traffic control then provided the altimeter setting for Habsheim, which was 29.84 inches of mercury, for that airport, which was is basically that allows them to calibrate their altimeter, their barometric altimeter, so that they would have a very accurate idea of how high they were. Can I can I give a guess on what I think happens? Sure. Did something happen with the altimeter, and they thought they were higher than they were? Not really. No. No. That is, I feel like that, that would be a good thing to to believe that happened because I know theory. Yes, this it's is a theory. Congratulations, everyone. You're here to witness our first conspiracy episode. Because... Oh, no. Yep. Sorry. I don't like conspiracy. So that's a theory. It's a theory. Okay. Moving on. The vertical speed for their descent was 600 foot per minute. A warning sounded related to the radio altimeter and the flap three configuration that they had chosen before it, the first oral altimeter message of 200 feet. It's literally the call-out the airplane gave them of 200 feet above ground level, which was at 12.45 and 6 seconds. Which probably means there wasn't anything wrong with their altimeter. No, no, there was, well, so that warning was just given to them based off the radio altimeter, so that was off of the ground, oh. that was off of the sonar, and it gave that to them, and it gave them a warning because the flaps weren't configured technically for their, their speed and their landing. It was at flaps 3, not flaps 4. Okay. So not full flaps. A second oral call-out of 200 feet occurred while the first officer was making a personal remark at 12.45 and 11 seconds, so only a few seconds later. The radio, because it's, they were using the radio altimeter for these call-outs, that means it could give you multiple 200-foot call-outs because of the changing terrain below the airplane. So at this point, it was about this point that the, the was captain it that actually... Low? It was pretty low. It was the captain noticed that the crowd was gathered by the grass runways and not the 
asphalt, asphalt runway that they that their whole operations department had planned for them. I thought it was higher than that, but that's uh, interesting. It might be slightly higher than that, but it was pretty close to the ground when he realized that they right. were all crowded around the grass runways. Fair enough. And so he had to make that approach in instead for the grass runways. So he had to change his approach that low? Well, yes, but they weren't they weren't different enough that it was going to change many things about his direction, like his heading or anything. Yeah, but he's already way too low. Well, but that was what they were planning to fly at anyways. It wasn't really going to change much for the airshow portion, except that he didn't know the runway's configuration. He just saw everybody there. So that's where he went and flew. Great. The first officer informed the captain that the airplane was reaching 100 feet at 12.45 and 14 seconds, and simultaneously, the radio altimeter made the 100-foot call out. The vertical speed at that point was still 600 foot per minute descent as they were crossing through 100 feet. Uh oh. The descent the descent rate then decreased slowly down to 50 feet about 8 seconds after passing through 100 feet. That's a long time. Then at a very low rate down to 30 to 35 feet above the ground. It then that's where it then remained for more or less in level flight for its air show demonstration. Wait, 35 feet above the ground? 30 to 35 feet above the ground. Uh-oh. Remember, they are supposed to be at 100. They were supposed to be at 100 Which feet. Which is already too low, and now they're lower than that. Yeah. That's not good. Yep. Throughout the whole descent and at the start of the and at the start of the level flight, the engines were at flight idle, so literally basically at the bottom of their their range. Hold on. They weren't back. producing they weren't producing power. The aircraft decelerated and its pitch up increased to 15 degrees nose high. During the last 25 seconds of flight, so that's pretty. That's what they had planned. They had planned to do nose high, so a high angle of attack, um, AOA, so the nose goes much higher than they normally would to keep the airplane from stalling. And they're trying to hold it at that that uh, alpha max, which is their their stall speed, or they're close to their stall speed without actually stalling. Which they had done before. Yes, the, this cap- was, the captain had done it before. This was not an out-of-question maneuver. Okay, why didn't they realize how low they were? We'll get into that. Great. <laughs> I love when you tell me that. I know. The end of the descent and the level off were made above runway 34 right, the grass runway. Between 12.45 and 34 seconds and 12.45 and 35 seconds, the engine controls were set to initiate the go-around, so they were increased to full throttle. The aircraft touched the trees at the end of the runway at 12.45 and 40 seconds, at which point the engines were at 83% power and increasing. The airplane impacted the trees at the rear of the fuselage first, followed by the tailplane, which would be the elevators, the engines, and then the landing gear, and then the rest of the airplane. The airplane slowly sank into the forest. The tip of the right wing and the entire right wing itself detached from the airplane, while going through the trees, and the fuel in the tanks ignited simultaneously in a large fireball. The fire was projected forward, and as the plane came to rest on its belly in the forest, the cabin and the airplane became engulfed in flames. Nice. Evacuation occurred immediately when the plane came to a stop and was initiated by cabin crew through the forward left and rear left cabin doors. What you didn't mention was that the first officer, he invited... Two off-duty flight attendants to sit in the cockpit with them. Yeah, that. And they helped initiate evacuation. Wait, they're still alive at this point? Almost. Actually, everyone is alive at this point. So, here's how it goes. A small child became trapped in her seatbelt 
and nobody seemed to pay much notice to her as they evacuated. She did not have her parents on board. Right. Oh, no. One woman, one of the last people off, did notice as she was attempting to evacuate, and she attempted to help this uh, small child, but both succumbed to the smoke inhalation. A third passenger perished that was a young boy with physical handicaps and was also trapped in the cabin. Oh, no. Oh. Yeah. Those were the only three that perished. The first officer struck his head very hard on the panel in the cockpit and was badly injured despite wearing seat har- his seat harnesses. Forty-nine passengers reported striking their heads on the seat back in front of them, and some said that they temporarily lost consciousness. So all in all, three passengers perished, two crew and 34 passengers were injured, four crew and 93 passengers were completely uninjured. That surprises me. Uh, Doesn't it? Yeah. As for wreckage, the airplane was completely destroyed by the impact and the subsequent fire. (laughs) And this was only the third A320 off the manufacturing line. Yeah. Reversing a little bit. When Mm -hmm. they hit the trees, is it because the nose was too high that they didn't realize they were going to hit the trees? Oh, no. They knew they, they saw were going to hit the trees. Then why didn't they immediately go to full? They did. They did go to full power. They did go to full power. But it said that they were at 83 when they hit they the trees. They were at 83% and increasing as they hit the trees. Oh. The engines were going to full power at that point. However, that's part of the conspiracy. That we'll save for later. Okay. Part of what caused that small girl to get trapped was because many of the seatbacks had broken while people were evacuating. Um, so they she were, was folded over. They were shoving against oh. the seats, and the seatbacks had broken, and it was folded over her, and it had trapped her in her seatbelt. Oh, no. I, I also heard that they had a new seatbelt buckle design that was yes. fairly uncommon. So yes, to... and that's also in my recommendations, but they did They did not, not demonstrate how to use said seatbelt. They did not demonstrate how ah. to use the seatbelt, and the seatbelt didn't... They. They didn't have a quick way to get out of the seatbelt, basically. This is why we have safety demonstrations. Yes. It also wasn't in the safety card. It wasn't? Nope. Oh my gosh! No wonder! That's horrible! (laughs) You can't just assume everyone knows... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You can't just assume everyone knows how to work the seatbelt if they've never been on that kind... If they've never had to use that kind of seatbelt before. You never know. It's easier to say to be safer than sorry, I guess, would be my point. Miranda gets mad at history. Yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so that's what I've got for wreckage and story. That's horrifying. So, the investigating entity was the French Accident Authority. What's that in French? (laughs) She asked me to say this one out loud. (laughs) (laughs) You did such a good job last time. (laughs) Is the Bureau Enquête Accident. Oh, God. Or the BEA, as I shall be calling them for the rest of this episode, because I am not saying that. (laughs) In charge of the investigation was Claude Bechet, who was actually also a captain for Air France and was also rated for the A320. That's fortunate. Is it? Is it? Or is it a conflict of interest? Probably is a conflict of interest. He was still working as a captain for Air France. Oh, no, 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 that is a conflict of interest. No, no. Anyway, that was never brought up in any capacity, but there's my first, um, are you sure about that? Okay. At their disposal, investigators had several useful sources of information. For one, they had successfully recovered both black boxes and the data, as well as a video that was taken as part of the air show that shows the full crash 
of Flight 296, which I will show now. Elevator music! It's on our website. That was horrifying. I think they could have probably increased throttles way before they did, but they didn't have a lot of time, to be fair. I'll get into it. Great. I, I Great. Just not, go for it. It's not it. that simple. It's it not, not that simple. It's not how. It's never not that simple. It's, it's never <laughs> not. It's never <laughs> not not that simple. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. No, it's never not 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 that simple, okay? No, okay. No. We're getting into triple negatives. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so in addition to this video, investigators also had a captain who was alive and was a willing interviewee, ready to provide as many details as he could. One of the very first questions, which Miranda has voiced several times, was why the A320 was flying so low to begin with and what the whole plan for this flyover was. Yeah, like, you're supposed to be at 100 feet. How did you get to 35 feet without anyone saying anything? Oh, they did. So what? <laughs> Captain Asseline said, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Asseline? Asseline? Just say with, say with a French accent. Asseline. No. <laughs> Asseline. Asseline. <laughs> said his whole plan was to perform a low altitude Alpha Max flyover at 100 feet above the ground. Investigator Bechet, being raided on the airplane, saw no problem in this maneuver on its own. It's entirely possible on that plane. But... There's a forest at the end of the runway. Why were they flying at 100 feet with a forest rapidly approaching? Turns out that Air France wasn't quite on top of things when they were filing their flight plan. As Nick mentioned, they only did so 48 hours before the flight even took place, which didn't give the crew proper time to think about it. You know, maybe do a test flight on their own or do it in a simulator. Nope, none of those things. And on top of that, they didn't properly copy it, so the forest didn't show up on the map. What? Yeah. So they had no idea there was a forest. Oh, no. But couldn't they see it on their descent, though? It just all looked green. Yeah. I mean, you're flying in an airplane, especially at a higher altitude. Yeah. A forest that's 30 feet tall doesn't really look that tall. Like a forest? Yeah, it looks just... He thought it... He literally said he thought it was just shrubs. Right. From a far distance and at a high yeah, when altitude. He was, yeah, when he was higher away, he thought they were just shrubs. And to be fair, oh. yeah, when you're flying like that, it definitely... That's what it can look like. Especially fast in a yeah. jet. Yeah. Plus, then his nose was high as he was doing the maneuver, so he, he would have had to look really far down to tell that they were actually trees. For one. Two, let's look at their maneuvering height. This was kind of poorly explained in the Air Disasters episode, so I'm going to do my best to say what the report said. This maneuver was planned at 100 feet of above the ground, which was allowed per an Air France internal note that Nick mentioned, specifically for demonstration flights. French federal regulations allow for an altitude as low as 170 feet for air shows, but no one had ever questioned or disallowed the 100 feet that Air France had used at many an air show before. Great. And you know, they should actually be experts on the air show because they have the Paris Air Show. The Paris Air Show is one of the largest air shows in the world. Yeah, but there's no forest probably in the Paris one. Just saying. Not much, but there are still trees there. Okay, my point being, that's fine that they're at 100. They probably would have been fine at 100, but they weren't at 100 feet. Actually, investigators kind of questioned the 100 feet in this instance solely because neither runway at the airport could handle the A320 if it needed to land for whatever reason. So they think they should have done... Been higher. Yeah. Even at higher than the 100 that they were planning yep. to do. So it was acceptable 
but inadvisable. Now, let's look at the data in the wreckage itself to look for mechanical failures. The long and the short of it, there wasn't any mechanical failure they could find. Though there was something a little more peculiar. The plane did not follow its flight plan, needless to say. Air France had issued the flyover flight plan to fly over runway 2 at the airfield, its only paved runway. But upon seeing the airfield, the flight crew noted that all of the spectators were lined up on the crossing runway, on the grass runway. So they altered their flight to fly over that runway instead and had to do so quickly as well as descend and slow down quickly because they spotted the airfield a little late in the game. They were like, I can't find it. Yeah, they didn't spot it until it was too late. Rather than doing a circle to set them better set themselves up for the flyover, they just rushed through it. Yep. They rushed their descent, rushed their throttle back. That's not everything. Good. In doing so, the plane actually continued to lose altitude during its flyover instead of maintaining altitude at 100 feet, and that's how it was able to impact the trees that were only 40 feet tall. In fact, the flight data recorder indicated that they were only 30 feet above the ground. The captain said that is absolutely impossible. There is no way his altimeter said that he was that low. He was relying on his barometric altimeter, which is set by using a pressure given by the tower to determine altitude based on air pressure. So when the tower said 984, it meant 29.84 inches of mercury, which was the calibration pressure. That was entered, as, you, as was heard in the cockpit voice recorder, but the captain still claims that it was off by dozens of feet. I, have I a, don't think so. I have a suspicion for this. Okay. They were nose high. It reads pressure at the pitot tubes on the nose. Oh. Yep. We have discussed this before, which would also lead to a misreading for speed. Mm -hmm. So they might have been also slower than they thought. Yeah. Although if they were too slow, when they the did stick not stall. Yeah. They, they did not stall. They were actually doing the maneuver correctly. It looks like it was done correctly from the video, but the the fact that they think that they were higher than that, that couldn't have happened if they impacted the trees the way they did. Yeah. There's so, no way that that could have happened if they were 100 feet in the air. That's one thing that I'm willing to write off as a conspiracy theory solely because we know that altitude misreadings can happen in a nose-high attitude. Now, if you are an avid listener of this podcast or an aviation enthusiast in general, you might be asking, didn't he have other means of knowing altitude? What about the radio altimeter? Let's get into it. The radio altimeter is another instrument on planes, as Nick talked about, that uses basically echolocation. It bounces a signal off the ground, and the time it takes to get back to the plane is proportional to the altitude above the ground. In the A320, that number is represented not on a dial the way the barometric altitude is, but rather as a digital numeric number just under the attitude indicator. The captain claims to this day that the number is so difficult to read because it, because it isn't a dial and that he just doesn't ever use it and still struggles with it. Plus, they are very, very, very small on the display, the radio altimeter altitude. But it's a digital number. Yes, it is yes. not a dial. Okay, but then why would it be harder to read? He's probably just used to the old analog gauges. Yeah, he's used to analog gauges, and then now on the A320, it's a tape, but it's sizable. It's a sizable tape. You can watch the numbers tick by, and it gives you a, a pretty fairly easy-to-read digital number. This, uh, this radio altimeter was on the bottom of that same display, but it was so small that it was probably an afterthought. I mean, they really didn't—he wasn't using that as a reference at all. What about the other pilot? I probably mean, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, my guess. Pretty much the same thing. <laughs> they, the, you know, they were probably in pretty similar states of mind, to be honest. And he doesn't come up very much. 
He didn't, not at all. He really didn't come forward to the investigation. He didn't come forward to anything. I mean, he part was of it quiet. is he had a pretty bad head, head injury. injury. Yeah, which doesn't help. And who knows? Maybe he didn't remember anything because of said hit, head injury. My point being is, there's not only one person in that cockpit. And there yeah. should not no. be only one person reading those instruments. Technically, but he did call out that they were reaching 100 feet. Yeah. Yes. Now, getting back to my point about the radio altimeter, it does call out altitudes. So you would think, wouldn't you have heard when it called out 50 or 40? Yeah. Was it sounded in the cockpit? Was it on the cockpit voice recorder? So it was. The captain claims that the aircraft was too loud. They had their headsets on, and the callouts did not come through the headset. Which, which is, is true. Okay. I can see to a certain extent, but I don't know. It's still a pretty loud thing, usually. Yeah, if you've ever... Maybe, okay, maybe not at this point, right? This is, what, the third A320? Yeah. So maybe it wasn't as loud as it is now. I maybe mean, not. Who knows? But if you've ever watched something that has cockpit callouts in it, it's pretty loud. It is, yeah just saying i'm just saying what he said i don't know maybe it was different i don't know i'm not a pilot but anyway i just think it would be loud enough even with a headset on so why did the captain continue to fly into the trees you might ask he said he pulled up an increased engine to full go-around power but nothing happened in fact he said in airbus document that he found one that warned that the engine speed on the A320 could stagnate at low altitude due to poor airflow and wouldn't accelerate. But investigators said there was no indication of that on the flight data recorder. The data from the recorder shows that the power did increase up to 84, 83, 84% before impact, and that was heard on the video as well. They did a spectral analysis of both the cockpit voice recorder and the video to determine what engine power was at any given moment that they could hear it. And actually, the video heard engines up to 91% after the flight data recorder stopped operating. Which would have been them within the trees. So, they did increase power. Yes. They probably just didn't do it fast enough. Just wait. Or soon enough, I guess. Not fast enough. With all the evidence seemingly against him, the captain became convinced that everyone, Airbus, the BEA, the public, everyone were all against him to cover up the problems with the A320 that actually caused the crash and were pinning it on him so that the A320 would still sell and be successful. He went on British TV with a slew of accusations. Too much control had been given to the computers, he said. The plane didn't do what he said. The elevator, which is a control surface on the tail of the plane that controls pitch, he said the elevator went down instead of up when he pulled up. Was that shown on the FDR? Yes. Okay. So investigators reviewed the stick control against the elevator movement, and they found that, in fact, the elevator did go down when the captain pulled up on the stick. But why would that happen? The recorder didn't actually record the plane going into any special mode, so Claude Bichet, the lead investigator, decided to try it out for himself on a test flight on the longest runway in Toulouse where the A320 is manufactured. Turns out, by flying that slow and that low, and that they were pulling the nose up, it actually activated a stall protection program. So that it would gain speed so it wouldn't stall. Yeah, and it pushed the nose down. Okay. So in that regard, Captain Asseline was not wrong. Yep. Okay. And after that, investigators stuck with what they said before. They pretty much said it was pilot error. Pro- okay, here's why I say that that's probably the case. Although I do think that relying on machines 
is is not great. Being having something be too automated can be an issue. Well, I I do not think it's pilot error. I think it's all on the Airbus because the whole idea Airbus had at the time was to design the pilot out of the cockpit. Right. Because almost every a lot of the incidents prior to that were pilot error, so they figured the best way to eliminate pilot error was to get rid of the pilot. Yep. So, uh, in some capacity, I agree with what the BEA said, that it was pilot error. Because they would not have been in the situation... If they were that low. If they weren't that low. So, by setting them up for this situation, I believe it was pilot error. After that, I'm open for debate. I'll throw in my two cents. Sure. Okay. Well, so, yes, yes, the pilots, I think, you know, they got too low. They weren't familiar with the airport, which, whatever... But I think in any other aircraft, they could have recovered from that. That's fair. True. I'm not saying that the full accident was pilot error, because I don't think that's true. Because it had an automatic stall failsafe, if that probably didn't happen, it probably would have been fine. I don't know. It, it's, a little, it's a little gray area, I think. And I see what you're saying, and I agree with you. My point being is him saying he couldn't hear the callouts, I don't know. I... They also had two other people in the cockpit with them. I, my point being, I don't, I don't know. There's also, I mean, one thing I've I've learned over the last couple of weeks doing a bunch of research on general aviation crashes is that when you're focused on something so much that they probably had the callouts, but mm-hmm. they weren't probably paying attention to them, right? Because they were probably so focused on performing the maneuver correctly, make sure we're putting on a good show for the people on the airfield, right? So that I think that you sort get of fixation, that that sort of tunnel vision where you only focus on what the task at hand and everything else kind of gets. Blurred out by the brain. Right. And that's happened to me before. And I have happened to me before. I think that would still be considered pilot error, though. So then jumping the gun on some of my uh, findings that I'll have in the second half of this, since we're in this conversation, jumping the gun on this, one of them in particular is that much contrary to what he was doing after the accident, they believe that before the accident, what he was trying to do was defend the Airbus's reputation because he had been part of its... The, Inception. The testing of it. He had been part of the test plan, the development of it, and the implementation into Airbus's fleet. And the thing is, is that the Airbus had already been getting so much criticism, the A320 had been getting so much criticism because of the fact that it was so automated and that it was pre-anticipating things ahead of the pilots. And they believe that he went into the air show to show off the airplane and prove that actually it was a really good, reliable airplane regardless. That was even what he had said. He said, I went in to to show off the airplane Mm -hmm. because he believed it was a good airplane. Afterward, his perception changed. He went into the opposite direction completely. But one of the findings was that he went into the air show with the expectation that he could defend the Airbus. And then after that, he didn't defend Airbus at all. Because he believed they were trying to blame him. That's fair. Yes. I think to be- so this is where I fall very in the gray area. I think it's some of both. That's what I was going to say. I think it's a little bit of both. A little bit, little bit of the plane, a little bit of the pilot. Yeah, this is one of those you can't lay blame on one particular thing. I think this had so many different factors to it that fell into place to cause this to go wrong. Now, yes... The Airbus, the, he probably could have climbed out of there if it hadn't had the automation of the Airbus, but he also put the airplane in a dangerous situation. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, folks. Sorry, you recording? We got a real barn burner in our hands. <laughs> barn burner? Oh, man. Some good old 70s Jeopardy references. Wow. So, in addition to this report, Captain Asseline did have to go through the French justice system. He was charged with involuntary homicide of the three passengers. Okay, that's a little excessive. So that happened. He was charged. He was convicted. He, he served was actually jail time. convicted? He yep. was convicted. Okay, I, I, I don't think that should have happened. But he has a couple of things he wants to talk about. So for one, he thinks the black boxes were tampered with. The reason for that is there are photos of one of the investigators grabbing the black boxes, which are actually orange, for those of you who don't know, from the scene. It is a brand new plane. So they were brand new. They were brand new. They looked brand new. They weren't banged up. The black boxes that were presented at court had old paint on them and scratches so he is convinced that they are different black boxes and that they were altered to make him look at fault he hired a swiss criminology expert who also concludes that they are not the same recorders based on photos yep bichet the investigator said these claims are outrageous as i would expect him to can i just say go into that amount of okay so here's okay. my problem with it. They're this tapes. Is, no, okay. No offense to the French, but this is pretty typical French drama. This is. It really is. And I, I don't. And I don't mean this in in a negative way in reality. But it is. It's pretty typical of of the French to kind of want to uphold their their personal uh, character. Like they, they want. They, they have want a sense to look of pride. Good. Yes, they have a sense of pride, and it's not a bad thing. But it does mean that there tends to be a lot of drama amongst themselves because they don't want to be the ones said that they're wrong. So this is kind of what's happening. It's a back and forth between actually just two people in reality. Yeah. So in addition to this, there was one expert. His name's Ray Davis. And he was hired by British television because, again, this is a drama. And he actually found that there was a four-second time discrepancy. In analyzing the tapes, he found that go-around power was applied actually nine seconds before impact, not the five seconds that the BEA said. Which is significant. Is it, though? It is. Because that would mean that he had applied go-around power before he was in the trees. And that means that the engines did wait until impact, basically, before they actually increased. That would that would have put them, what was it, eight, nine seconds worth of delay between the time that he went to full throttle and the time that the engines actually increased power. Whereas it would have been more acceptable and realistic if it was really only five seconds from impact because engines don't respond immediately, which makes sense. But nine seconds is a lot longer in those terms. Okay. And that he could have climbed out of there with that. All right. Well, like we said before, even if that's the case, I do believe part of this is on the actual plane itself. If that's the case, then yeah, it's an Airbus problem. However, like we said before, if he wasn't that low, it wouldn't have been an issue. Nope. So it it can't just be, like, I understand where he's coming from. I'm not saying that that part is specifically his fault. 
because frankly, from what you've said, we kind of just don't know. And part of this, I don't think was so much to negate the report, but it was at trial that I think a lot of this came out because he was fighting to not be convicted, which ultimately he was, and he was sentenced to 10 months in prison. I think convicting him of that was a little extra. I don't think that was completely necessary. Mm -hmm. Accidents are accidents. He didn't purposefully do that, which I would associate with murder. But that's where the involuntary came from. He was convicted of involuntary homicide. He was the captain responsible for everyone, and three people did die. Yep, he knowingly put the airplane into a not-normal situation. Yes. So Since then, he has become a teacher and inventor in aviation and is still working to clear his name. So then we'll move on to findings. So the commission found that there were no no malfunctions with the aircraft or the aircraft equipment. They found that the two pilots held management positions at Air France and participated in various stages of the development and introduction of the A320. They found that neither pilot had previously made a demonstration flight before. Oh, no. So this was the first time that they were showing anything off or going to an air show as a pilot. That would be significant, I think. Yep. They found that there was no psychological or medical factor of the crew played in the crash, the accident. So no factors, mental, physical, or otherwise. They found that there, the preparation for the flight included only a short brief for the flyby of the air show. They found that the crew had only partial information on the organization of the air show, particularly because of a lack of communication between the organizers and the crew. So in other words, the organizers and the crew actually didn't even talk to each other. So the air show had never talked to the crew or the pilots or anything. The, only the, the middleman, the operations department for the air charter, had done the research and had talked to the organizers and told them what they wanted, did very minimal work in providing the setup and the plan for the, the crew and just handed it off to them. There was no communication between the air show and the crew themselves. That probably should have taken place, too. Yep. They found that during taxi at Basel, before takeoff, the captain specified intentions for the flyby at Habsheim with the first at 100 feet flaps 3 and geared down, deceleration in flight down to minimum airspeed corresponding to the Alpha Max for stabilization at this minimum speed, then the application of full power on the captain's orders, then the second at the same altitude but a high speed. They found that they located... Have shine late while in flight. They found that the descent started at 12.43 and 44 seconds at 5.5 nautical miles from the airfield. Throttles were then brought to flight idle to speed up the process. They found that when they were at 100 AGL, the descent rate was still at 600 foot per minute descent. They found that the pilots leveled off at an altitude of about 30 feet AGL. Engines at flight idle, altitude increasing. But the captain did not have time to stabilize the angle of attack at the maximum value that he had selected. They found that the rapid application of full power occurred between 12.45 and 34 seconds and 12.45 and 35 seconds. Now, one second interval. Why, you might ask? Well, because the flight data recorder only recorded in two second intervals. That's weird. At the time. It is now unbelievably much higher on the Airbus and the Boeing. It's now many times a second. That's good. <laughs> many times a second. It's. I think they said. I think we said it was like within the range of a hundred times a second. Basically, it depends hertz. on the parameter. And it does. one thing that I did read is that if something changes rapidly, that it increases the sampling rate. So it's not a steady sampling rate. Right. But I was really struggling to find information on this, um, either published by the FAA or the EASA. 
I if someone has information on the sampling rate of flight data recorders, please send it to me. Please. I also found that the angle of attack was 15 degrees and at the time at that time and the speed was also at 122 knots at the time. They found that the response of the engines was normal and in compliance with certification requirements. That's one of those conspiracy things. That's what the report says, but that's what the pilot disagrees with. The number one thing that he disagrees with. He believed that he applied power and that it didn't respond. They're claiming that that didn't happen. But with the flight data recorder, there's no way they could have known with that two-second gap. Okay, that's true. So maybe they didn't do that on purpose. Maybe that's just what they had. That is what they had, but there's still some conflicting information. They found that the aircraft touched at, touched the trees at 12:45 and 39 to 12:45 and 40 seconds at the rear of the fuselage, and then the and then it sank slowly into the trees as a result of the induced drag, and the loss of engine power caused by ingestion of tree fragments. Wow. Yeah, that usually yeah that usually slows down an airplane. Yeah, that usually bit, slows it down yeah. pretty quick. Also, you know, losing the right wing. That's usually yeah. Most planes don't fly with one wing. No. Most in, planes, meaning all planes. Most all. <laughs> Every single one of them. Well, sometimes they do, just not for very long. Yeah, not for very long. <laughs> they don't usually fly again. No, they don't. <laughs> they found that, there was, that a very violent fire broke out immediately, mainly from the right side of the aircraft, and flames penetrated the cabin as soon as the airplane came to rest. They found that evacuation was begun immediately by the cabin attendants via the forward and rear left side doors. They found that three passengers were unable to leave the cabin and died in the fire due to smoke inhalation. They found that the flight preparation was insufficient for the air show, given the late brief provided to the crew. So this this is another aspect we really haven't talked about, but I do believe it's not necessarily the pilot's fault that they were poorly prepared for this air show. I mean, obviously no, they were given company. poor obviously they were given poor information about which runway and such because they didn't do their research. But also they provided the the file to them the day of. Are you kidding me? They didn't give them time to sit in operations and plan it out or run a simulation practice on it or anything for the air show that's tough that's a company fault right like if they have the correct information they could plan out every single step along the way but yeah here they were like 100 feet above the ground going oh they're over there they right. were flying by the seat of their pants they literally were flying by the seat of their pants and it's it's totally fine to fly like that just not in a320 full of passengers <laughs> <laughs> they found that the task sharing plan for the flyby by the crew was incomplete and was not followed so there's that that crew resource management thing because they were both captains. They found that a... This is an interesting one. This one actually really caught me off guard. They found that a holiday atmosphere by the passengers could have transmitted to the captain. So basically they're saying that because... Okay, so this is something I didn't clarify. All the passengers were on this charter flight purely for sightseeing. They were all... They either got their tickets through a travel agency as a win... They won yeah, on... a lot of them won tickets. That's yeah. how like a seven-year-old was aboard without their parents. Almost all of them were on board because they won tickets, except for the journalists who were invited. And there were a few journalists on board that were recording, and they had all these passengers on board because they were trying to show off the airplane. And the air show was just kind of an afterthought. It was part of the sightseeing thing they were doing. But it's what brought them down toward the Alps anyways. So they participated. And they believed that because all these passengers were on there purely for fun, and they were all just getting to see the airplane that was being shown off, that the passengers were on there with this great atmosphere, but it was really relaxed. It was more of a vacation. Right. And they believe that that may have transmitted on to the captain, which here's something I agree with, actually. And the reason I agree with that is because of their kind of lackadaisical way they handled, they handled it. Even, you know, they were given poor information, and that's not on them. But 
the fact that when they notice the airport too late, rather than setting themselves up for it, taking the time to maybe do a, do a loop and go in to set themselves up, they just rushed into it. They dropped the altitude as quick as possible and dropped the throttles, and they that put them in kind of a lazy sense to get themselves down there. And so I don't think it put them in the right frame of mind for the situation they were going into. Allow me to translate. Holiday in Europe means vacation. Vacation, yes. It means a relaxed vacation atmosphere. Yeah, going on holiday means going on vacation. Yes. Here in the United States, holiday is like Christmas, like yeah, Fourth like of that. July, like <laughs> literally, Christmas. it's it's a, a single day that's actually celebrated. For holiday something. translated to America is vacation, right? You don't you don't say, oh, I'm going on holiday to visit friends in the United States. No, I'm, I'm going, going on, on vacation. vacation to visit friends. It's different, but. In this case, it means that they were a relaxed atmosphere. You're right. I, I was going to say something about that. Like, they knew they weren't in the right spot. Yeah. But instead of doing probably the proper procedure and setting them up for it, setting themselves up, Yeah. which they had plenty of time to do. It's not like they were on a time schedule, like specific. Right. The plane didn't really have to be anywhere. Right. So instead of setting themselves up for a proper flight, go go around, whatever, mm-hmm. to show off the airplane, they drop the throttles and they try to go as slow as possible to get as low as possible. And that might have been one of the things they weren't paying attention to when they were getting the call-outs and stuff. Right. And then they were too low. Yeah. And then, and then it was just not good. Right. So finishing out the findings, I got four more. They found that the A320 had new features which could have inspired overconfidence in the mind of the captain. There's another one that didn't really catch me off guard because that was kind of the whole argument. So the A320 was the first plane that was fly-by-wire. So rather than a pilot controlling the plane, it was a pilot controlling a computer to control the plane. That's weird. That's how Airbus is. That's how almost every airplane is now. Yeah, all commercial jets are pretty much that way. Yep. So the airplane, the whole intention is that the airplane then anticipates what the, the captain is trying to do. And it can also tell if that captain is maybe putting the airplane in a dangerous situation and get them out of it. And it can the override the pilot, yes. which is, is the big argument here. Should that happen? Right. The max. <clears throat> it's also better, you know, because, you know, with cables, they snap. And with hydraulics, they yeah they bust. Like, yep. I think you guys covered that United one. Uh-huh. That was the first one. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. They found that the new features had been criticized and that the captain may have wanted to defend the aircraft's reputation with the display. So that's what I was saying earlier. That's where I jumped the gun. Like, he was trying to defend the Airbus, actually, when he was going to do the display. Afterward, not so much. They found that the late identification of the airport led to the rush of events to prepare for the flyby, reducing the ability to stabilize the airplane for the flyby, like I said. They found that neither of the two pilots had experience of applying go-around power from flight idle in a similar condition. Which I find interesting. I guess I don't know any other situation you would need to do it, though. I don't know, but they found it. I mean, I guess you could probably say the same of a bunch of pilots, I would think. Mm, Probably, but still, it's interesting that I wasn't trained. That's what caught me off guard on that one. How did they not at least do simulator training on from flight idle going to full go-around power? I just don't know when you would need to use that. Apparently here. Yeah. Aren't go-around procedures practiced? Yes. However, here's the thing. supposed to be. Most go-around procedures, to be fair, are carried out at decision altitude. Right. Oh, yeah, it makes sense, because they're way way below that. Right. So throttle wouldn't have been at idle. In this case, throttle was at idle, and they were essentially putting the airplane in a position to touch down on a runway. Right. It was intending to land. Yeah, so they would not have practiced that. So they would not have practiced this exact situation. But they found it. They found the situation. 
That's it for findings. Okay, the probable cause. The commission believes that the accident resulted from the combination of the following conditions. Very low flyover height, lower than surrounding obstacles. No, really. Speed, very slow and reducing to reach maximum possible angle of attack. Engine speed at flight idle and late application of go-around power. So entirely pilot error on their behalf. They didn't blame anything else. And I think that's their mistake. I, I think, think that there were other factors. I think they should have blamed both. Well, Me of too. course, the, you know, the Airbus was brand new. They didn't want the Airbus to look bad. Right. <laughs> now they and do, that's just it. They do mention other factors. And I already put those in my findings. findings. They didn't blame the plane in any capacity. Which they probably should have at least a little bit. Yes. If it's if it was true that he applied power nine seconds before collision, that's the plane's fault, not his. Right. Which I guess we wouldn't know if they tampered with the tape. That's like a whole bunch of conspiracy stuff that makes my head hurt. Uh however, too much automation is a problem, and I think that was part of the problem here. Little too much automation. Because it did try to point the nose down when he tried to point the nose up. I think it was a little bit of both. If they weren't so low, it probably wouldn't have been a problem. But even so... It should have been recoverable. Yeah. I wonder if anyone's tried to do this in a simulator sense. They have. Did they make it out? It's, it's not so hard to... <laughs> yes. Okay. Because t- the technology has changed. Yes. Yes. The A320 is not the same airplane anymore. No. You'll actually notice if you watch the video that this A320 does not have winglets. Like I said, it's an A320-100. This one was early. And it, yeah, it didn't have winglets. And a lot of things actually changed in the cockpit after this. Yeah, notice how there was an A320-100 and an A320-200. The A320-200 came out almost right away. (laughs) Great. (laughs) There were only like a few A320-100s that actually existed. So, preparation for flight recommendations. There are several sections of recommendations, I should clarify. This As one's the... there usually are with French reports. Yes, but this one, so, there, there's quite a few sections. But, for the start, preparation for flight recommendations. They recommended that the preparations of such flights for air shows must follow regulations. So, in other words, they're saying they shouldn't follow the 100-foot thing, they should have followed the 170-foot thing. thing. And in reality, in actual operations with passengers on board, the legal minimum is 500 feet. Ooh, they're way below that. They recommended that the drawing up, that is literally what it said in the report, by the way. <laughs> they recommended that the drawing up of a comprehensive flight safety brief speci- specifying the flight parameters to be observed and the procedures to be followed in case of failure. So... In case something goes wrong with the airplane, here's what you should do. Okay. They recommended a meeting between the crew and the departments which prepared the flight and organized within good time before the scheduled date of the flight. I feel like that one... That's a no-duh. Duh, but they didn't do it. Duh. They recommended effective reconnaissance of the place where the flight is to be made. So the pilots should know where they're land. Going the, by, then? The, at least the operations department should have gone there and said, what's happening here? At least someone knows that there are three different runways, one through two are grass, and there's right. a bunch of trees at the end. There's obstacles at the end of this one. Where is the flight actually taking place? Right, right. Like, Where's everyone going to be? Yeah. Nobody actually went to the place and saw it. They just talked to somebody over the phone and were like, yeah, cool, we'll send it over there. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's whatever. great. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Makes me feel so safe. Yeah, they don't do that anymore. Obviously. <laughs> yeah. 
They recommended one or more practice flights on a representative flight simulator, including special attention to the critical aspects, which may result from non-observance of the flight parameters, especially in the case of a failure. This one's saying they should have practiced in a flight simulator. Before they actually For did this it. specific maneuver. Yeah. Now, see, that actually kind of surprised me a little bit, because I know simulator time is very difficult to come by. It is, and it's expensive. Across all airlines, so... But these two captains probably could have gotten it. And with uh, Air yeah. France, they probably would have given it to them. They recommended that this type of flight be made without passengers and be made using only the minimal crew required to operate the aircraft. Use only, they recommended using only maneuvers authorized by the operating manual, especially passenger maneuvering requirements. Isn't the minimal amount three people, or is it two? Two in the Airbus, actually. Don't you still need the flight crew, though? The flight attendants? Well, they're saying when they're operating without passengers to operate with the minimal required to actually oh, operate okay. the airplane. So two? Two. So Two crew on board. No one should be on board except the two pilots. That then? was the idea. That's what they were saying, yeah. Probably pretty safe to yep. do that. And then yeah. they were saying that if there are passengers on board, that you need to follow your operating manual for passenger flight. None of these maneuvers yes. were in the operating manual for passenger flight, by the way. Not one of them. They recommended internal rules of airlines be checked for conformity with the official regulations. Change 100 feet to 170 feet for air shows. Even though you've never been called out on it before, doesn't mean you get to continue just breaking the rules because you're the flag carrier for this country. Right. Also, if they had done that and they went below the 170, it probably would have been safer to do that than go below the 100 that they wanted to go to. Yes. I don't know. Just a thought. <laughs> yep. On to training recommendations. The recommended airline pilots be reminded that their job consists of strictly applying standard and well-defined procedures. Do your job. Per the manual. They, rec they recommended that their training be more oriented towards safety, which requires that the standard flight conditions be permanently maintained. So in other words, they're saying, maintain safe flight, but do it when you're doing actual operations the airplane is designed for with passengers. But that's boring. I know. Boo! <laughs> Just kidding. That's so a sad. very good thing to do. That is a very good thing to do. The recommended A320 training, in particular, for the pilots, are made aware that the performance limitations still stand, as on any other aircraft, in spite of the many automation protections. So, fly the airplane. That's it. It's usually a good thing. Yep. They recommended that flights made with crew members of the same rank, the functions of each and the tasks sharing be especially well-defined. Who's doing what? Yeah. Just plan it out beforehand. Like, literally, like, if you see, like, in, a, in, a, in the war rooms for pilots, like, on an aircraft carrier, how they all sit down, they chart out exactly what their mission is, and literally they take the time to say, I'm going to be at this point at this time every time, all through the entire mission exactly where they're going to be. They should have done that. I got a comment about um, my profession at one point that's like, always make sure you cover your butt. Because it's better <laughs> yeah. if you plan it out in advance, say it out loud, focus on it. Even if nothing happens, mm -hmm. if something does, mm -hmm. it's on the cockpit voice recorder and right. they can hear it. Right. And then it's like, okay, I they realize that we went over the process before we started flying. We knew who was doing what. That wasn't a problem here. Right. It's on the flight data recorder if they didn't tamper with it. Whoa. Conspiracies. <laughs> <laughs> they recommended that crews performing demonstration flights receive special and well-adapted training, which is not within the scope of the basic training or type certification. Makes sense. Special training. On to cabin attendant recommendations. They recommended that 
aircraft qualifications stage be reinforced and that the emphasis be placed on the location and use of safety equipment, each trainee must handle all of the equipment on the actual aircraft or on a demonstration mock-up. So in other words, this crew was unfamiliar with the airplane. What? Yeah. They managed I mean, to evacuate. It was new. Yeah, they managed to evacuate everybody, but they found there's quite a few things wrong with this. Yeah, I will say, even though you know they didn't know how to work the seatbelts, the doors are much easier to operate. Yeah. on those aircraft because it's pretty they much are. just a simple lever. Yeah, well, one push. lever, and then you push the air, the door slides out. Well, aircraft like uh like the DC nine or or whatever DC ten. Yeah, where they like, you had to like. You had to, like, place a bar into the bottom of the door. Yeah. And it was just super... Con- if you ever get a chance to look that up. The recommended uh, means of simulation, a realistic environment for training cabin attendants, be studied. They actually have that now. They have a... Yeah, they have full-size... entire cockpit. training facility on opening doors, getting slides deployed. At United. How you jump on slides, things at, like that. At United, because I've been there, they actually have a full cabin mock-up, and they can actually tilt it at, a, like, a 30-degree angle to one side and fill it with smoke and you have to evacuate people and go through the whole thing. I mean, it is really comprehensive now. I do know this is, um, there's a video of when they released the, uh, when they're testing the A380, mm-hmm. they filled the whole thing up yeah. with whatever, like 500 people. And they, uh, it was 800. And, it was a lot more than 500. 800 and something. 863 people. Yeah. 863 And people. they, they did, th- they went through the whole, can you get everyone off in 90 seconds? And they did. <laughs> that's un- that's absurd. <laughs> is that a double decker? Yeah, that's that's the- a full size double deck. Wow, this is the the largest big plane, the highest capacity airplane for that's passengers right. it, ever. It should built. be over eight hundred because they have to do it for their maximum capacity. Yes, it is certified for eight hundred and fifty three passengers. Eight hundred and fifty three. I said eight hundred and sixty three. Dang it, so eight hundred and fifty three passengers. That's insane. <laughs> In ninety seconds to evacuate hundred, but that thing does have a lot of doors, so. They recommended that cabin attendants be made aware of the psychological effect that their remarks and behavior can have on the passengers. That was really interesting. That one seemed really pointed, but actually, it turns out it wasn't for a negative reason. It turns out they were saying that because some of the the cabin crew were actually telling everybody, like, you're going to be okay. Like, like they were super professional and calm and relaxed, and they handled everything so well. Passengers actually made comments to the, the investigators later that the cabin crew handled it well. So good on them, but... Learn how to use a seatbelt. It was interesting that that was then a recommendation. I feel like that should be a recommendation if it didn't work well. Like, yeah. they're doing their job. <laughs> it's, good to, it's good to point out the positive uh, sure, sure, The, 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 positive, the things. positive things, yes. Okay, aircraft recommendations. They recommended studies be made to see if it would be if it would not be judicious to transmit all warnings and oral announcements via the pilot's headsets. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah. If it's true that they really can hear the call-outs, which I don't think is. That did change. Yeah. That's probably a good thing that they changed that. Yep. They recommended that when voice and flight data recorders are separate devices, as they are in the A320, that the cables should also run in separate routes through the fuselage. Because they were both severed at the same time, since they ran through the same cable uh, oh, harness yeah. collection, basically. Which is why I said that the video recorded the engines going up to 91% when the FDR never knew that. And it calls it out when they are separate devices, because not all airplanes those are, have those as separate devices. Some small airplanes, they are one single device. They recommended that the systems attaching the handset to the cabin wall be reinforced. The handset, the, the next, the following point clarifies this. They recommended that the interphone system for the cabin crew return to the public address function when hung up to allow quick and effective communication in case of an emergency. So what they're actually talking about is literally the phone on the wall that the flight attendants pick up at the front and rear cabin. Yeah. Because they found that one of them fell off the wall 
So first of all, that made it really difficult to communicate. Second of all, on the Airbus, when they would make a call, if they called specifically to the rear, the person at the rear or to the cockpit, that it would then stay on that function when they picked up the phone again, which means when they needed to evacuate passengers, when they picked up the phone, they were then talking to nobody. Oh, no. <laughs> rather than talking to everybody. So they were saying to make it standard that the, the phone system go back to, when it's hung up, that it goes back to the PA system for the cabin so that they can quickly communicate evacuation orders. That's they did do that. That's oddly specific. But it it's is, good. but it's really smart. <laughs> yeah, I like that one. <laughs> that one is really good. They recommended that during the safety demonstration before each flight, use of the seatbelt be demonstrated. Yes. Not. And they recommended that these procedures also be shown in the safety card. Yes. Also, both of those things are a thing. If you've been on a plane in the last oh, several yeah, years, yeah, 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 it's yeah. a thing. Yeah, yeah. Definitely several years, there is, several it is required. Yes. They recommended that the attention of the seatbelt manufacturers be drawn to the advantage of providing unlocking systems where a single simple action causes both unlocking and separation of the two halves of the seatbelt. Which happens. This is an interesting one. So they're saying that, like, people, first of all, people didn't know how to use it. Second of all, it has the single use, like the, the pull tab, and yes. that would unlock the two halves, but they're saying that they want something that not only unlocks, but it also pushes the two apart in that one motion. So, and they kind of do that now. Yeah, they do. Basically. If you were so when to you pull if up you were on that to, tab. If you were to pull up and then get up, it would come off. Yeah. That's funny. I always thought that was my gut doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it is my gut Did doing I? that. <laughs> they recommended that studies be undertaken so that the design of the future seats takes potential problem the potential problem into account that the passengers hit their heads on the back of the seat in front of them. Yeah. And they changed the seats, so that doesn't happen. Well, they probably should have been in a brace position, too, but, you know. They didn't know they needed to be in a brace position. That's true. <laughs> also, so that the backs had... of the seats don't collapse would be nice? Yeah. This is the Organizations of Help recommendation. That was weird. This is for first responders. They recommended that access to the airport is kept open for firefighting and first responder vehicles. Which, now they're just on site. Yes. <laughs> but at that little airport, they may not have been. And they're not oh, at Centennial, not. actually. There are quick ways for them to get on site, generally. All right. <laughs> Brendan has a little uh, 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 thing. So because part of this is pilot error. He has a thing. Okay. Yeah. So I've been... Um, first of all, I just want to say I'm not a pilot, but I, and Nick and I, we, we've been interested in aviation for years and years and many, years. Many, many, many years. And I've recently taken interest in becoming a private pilot thanks a lot just kidding <laughs> uh, that's all right um so i've been looking up into studying for taking the all the courses to become a private pilot mm -hmm. that's taking me across general aviation accidents so i first i just want to talk about the whole commercial incidents so basically in the last 10 years there have been zero deaths in the united states due to in commercial aviation yeah apart from one nope, was the southwest 20... airlines passenger. there's actually four if you want to consider all well, I actually sure. have all the notes there. Sure, sure. Um, um, it, it's generally zero. Yes. The last basically the airplane. Zero. Yeah, basically the airplanes haven't crashed, causing death. Right. Right. The last one which you guys covered was that Colgan Air. I yeah. Have the notes yep. In two thousand nine. Thirty-four oh seven. I am glad that we covered that one. Episode four, if you haven't listened to it yet. So that was the last time there was like uh, that we had a crash, like an actual fatal disaster yeah. in the United States. So, so keep it that way. Pretty much all of these incidents that you guys have talked about in the past and all the ones you're going to talk about have set the future here. All anytime Miranda gets mad, just realize that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's for that good reason. It, all that those people that died on those flights 
I've yeah. saved millions of people now in the future. She can get mad at history because now we don't deal with those problems. Right. Right. So I just wanted to put that very forward. Now, the problem is that we've learned from all these incidents. Yeah. But in the general aviation field, that's going to be like your private pilot, your instrument rated pilot yeah. who flies. Your private jet. Who fly your, you know, your, your piston aircraft, your little four seater. Yeah. yeah. They haven't learned by that. Now you have. Exactly. Boom. I have the uh, deaths in the last couple of years. Oh, it is astronomically high. So in 2011, in GA, general aviation, there were 448 deaths. Ooh. That's a lot. Zero. Yeah. In part 121, commercial flight. Yep. In 2012, 440 deaths, zero in commercial. Yeah. And the trend conti- continues. So f- from 2011 to 2019, 3,560 people have died in general aviation. Yeah. Yikes. Four people have died in commercial aviation. That does include the one person on the Southwest flight back in yep. 2018. And then we have f- three people that died. One was a cargo flight flying over the ocean near Florida. One pilot died, mm-hmm. and then the uh, crew of, of the, the Houston crash. Of the uh, primary. Yeah, the primary crash. The yeah. Amazon. And there's other incidents that have caused death, but they are not air-related. Like, yes. I'm pretty... It's not a fault of a pilot or the aircraft. Right. People pass away from heart attacks in airplanes all the time. <laughs> By the way, this is just the United States. Yeah, yeah this is yeah, just in the United States. Oh, this there... does not account for some places in the world. <laughs> so... Overall, you know, over the last 10 years, over 3,000 deaths in general aviation alone. Yeah. Now, almost all of those are going to be pilot error. Right. A lot of it is pilots flying to IMC or instrument meteorological conditions, which means they can't see anything outside. Yeah. That's not good. So a lot of, uh, if you're a private pilot, you're rated for VFR or virtual flight rules flight, which means you can only fly when you can see outside. Yeah. When you can see the horizon, which is important. Well, you don't have to see the horizon. You have to at least... uh, was it three miles visibility? Three mile visibility. And tops of 2,500, yeah. I believe. Yeah. That's what I think I looked up. So you have to be able to at least see it three miles, and the clouds can't be less than 2,500 feet above them. And ground. I think you have to remain visually remain 500 feet below them. I think, is that what it is, or something like that? Yeah. When you're flying? Because be, there has to be a minimum of 2,500 right. feet when you take off, ground level to cloud. But then I think you have to remain visually 500 feet below them. And so a lot of these pilots, they fly, they they may take off, they might take off in VFR conditions, but they might fly into IMC without really planning on it or knowing it. Yeah, and you know that could be for many of many different reasons. And then all of a sudden they're in a situation where they can't handle. I say what IMC is? Instrument meteorological conditions. That means they oh, okay. have to use the instruments to fly the. Oh, okay. Yeah. The weather, weather outside means that they have to use their instruments. They have to, to use instruments instead of visual. And if you're okay. not an instrument-rated pilot, you don't know how to do that the appropriate way. Right. You, you can do, know some basics. You do You do some basic training during your private pilot license, but you don't mm-hmm. understand, especially like how to use like a landing system yeah. or something like that. This is why I could make the argument that you should have to learn both all the so, way through. But it is hard to do that. Uh, yeah, the, the instrument rating is a lot of work. It is a lot of work. So even if it's unintentional, is it illegal? It's technically if you if you take off into IMC conditions, it is illegal. If, if you, you do f- it knowingly, yes. If you do it you know, by accident, there's a lot of paperwork involved, but you probably won't get your license suspended. You might, depending on the circumstances. Like right. If, if you continue, you are supposed to know your weather and route. Now, things like mountains exist, and that changes things. <laughs> And that does happen to pilots actually here in Colorado all the time. Yeah, there were a lot of incidents when I looked up in yeah. the mountains. 
So this leads us to a relatively new thing called AQP-AFR, Advanced Qualification Program Annual Flight Review. I would like to learn this. So for sure. This is a relatively new thing by Dan Greider. He's a, basically a CFI, a Certified Flight Instructor, and he focuses on basically pilots not killing themselves. Yeah, that's important. is what most of these pilots do in general. That is pretty much what you're in, your training is to do. And so basically what the Advanced Qualification Program is, it's basically what airlines use nowadays to train their pilots. They specifically tailor their training to be above the FAA standards mm-hmm. and to suit the training that they need to focus on. And that makes sense. Like, for example, they don't need to know how to do lazy eights. Right. No, that is... That's basically just a flight maneuver that, for whatever reason, they test for. In yeah. Well, and in general aviation, there's many things that are, like, so outdated, they still train for. It's kind of and silly. I actually have... A, I found a quote from him in one of the videos. Actually, I'll show you... I'll uh, share with you where you can find a lot of his stuff. He said, general aviation will never change what's on the check ride. The check ride is when you test for yeah, your pilot's license. Yeah, for your pilot's license. It's your final exam. But you can change what you want to practice, review, and want to improve on after you get your license. Yes. So basically, your pilot's license will get you able to fly, but with the AQP, the Advanced Qualification Program, it will tailor you to handle situations that are real. real. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. So I have a, che- a checklist here between, it's a difference between general aviation and commercial aviation. Just for reference, and in case anyone was curious, there is a very good Facebook page that most of us follow called Aviation Accidents slash This Day in History. And I don't know who this guy is. I don't know how he gets his information, but he always has the most up-to-date stuff on crashes that happen around the world. And he posts general aviation accidents, and you can see how frequently they occur. Yeah, and he actually collects that data and uses it at the end of the year to give you statistics on the year. And it is really, really, really interesting. So we're recording this on April 19th. There was just one yesterday in California. I'm not surprised. Yeah. There's probably one today he hasn't written about yet. Did it say what it was? It was a Cessna Turbo Stationaire 2 impacted timbered open field foothill terrain near Auburn, California, near the airport. And one of the people killed in the accident was the mayor of Auburn. Wow. Did it say how the accident happened? No, because d- no one knows yet. No Small knows. piston airplane. The airplane was the airplane was destroyed, and one of the two occupants aboard was fatally injured. Did it say what the weather was? Nope. Dang, okay. It's a small single-engine piston airplane. Because we could, we could probably figure that out. But anyway, so here is the what they check for in a test ride on a general aviation sense. Power on stalls, power off stalls, mm-hmm. cross-control stalls, and accelerate stalls. Basically all the stalls. Yep. I've already done all of those. They, test for, they sometimes test for spin recovery, slow flight. Steep spirals, shendels, lazy eights, steep turns, short field takeoffs, soft field takeoffs, short field landings, short soft field landings. Grass, basically. <laughs> basically. Pi- eights on pylons. For our aviators out there, I'm sure a lot of you know these terms. For everybody who doesn't know these terms, you can look them up. Yeah, Most of them are pointless maneuvers. Yeah, they're just... They really are. <laughs> they're really pointless. Emergency descents, emergency landings, pre-flight preparation... And go around. So that's what you that's what you basically get for your private pilot license. Right, right, right. Now there's only two of those things that are usually covered by commercial aviation. And that is your pre flight preparation. Yep. And your go around procedures. Yep. Everything else the commercial airlines do not test for. Not all the time, there are some ex- exceptions. Yeah, but most of these I mean they wouldn't need it. Right. So You're now we're gonna do a Chandel on an <laughs> <laughs> So now 
commercial air- airlines basically test for pre-flight preparation, aeronautical decision-making, before taxi checklist, pre-flight briefing, rejected takeoffs, controlled flight into IMC, or intentional, yep. loss of thrust on takeoff, train avoidance, or C-fit, yep. in-flight loss of a vacuum or primary flight display, autopilot failure during flight, I don't know this one, Nick. Maybe you know DMMS. Mm, I don't know that one. I don't know. I have to look that one up. I I think I did. Christy's going to do some She's always the live research person. Abnormals during flight, stabilized approaches, and of course, go arounds. Defined minimum maneuvering speed. Oh, yes. Defined yeah, okay. minimum yeah, yeah, maneuvering yeah, 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 speed. Yeah. Which we kind of talked yeah, about. Yeah, I, I guess I would know it as minimum maneuvering speed. That's, right. Those are posted in the cockpit most of the time, like literally on the panel. So it, it is noted here that sometimes airlines do test stalls. Which is important because you need you should know what to do in a, in a stall. Yes, but what's more we all important, know what to do in a stall. But what's more important that they test for, and it's kind of a few of these, is how to prevent a stall. Exactly. Yeah, they. And that's part of this um, qualification thing is that when you, if you're flying your little seven around and you hear that beep, which yeah, is, is a stall, is the Im- imminent stall. Right. It's that few seconds that like two seconds before that you immediately push down, push the nose down. Before you even react. So all of this stuff is designed to prevent pilot error. Pilot error. Yeah. And in the general aviation, that's not taken in. All they do is practice stupid maneuvers that are useless and other more useful things. And I'm sure there's a lot of pilots out there that are like, those aren't useless. You can use it for this, that, or the other. It's like, okay, but anybody who's actually building a career out of this just doesn't need... I mean, it's not that it, it can't be done. I just don't know that it should be tested. Now, there, there are a few things that neither of them test for, and that is unintentional flight into IMC mm-hmm. or inadvertent IMC or spatial disorientation. Yeah. So this is why when GA pilots with their VFR rating only fly into clouds and get themselves really disoriented, this is why they end up crashing because they get confused and they don't know how to handle the situation. Now, airline pilots don't need to know how to do that because right. they're constantly flying IFR, instant yeah. flight rules. Yep. So that means that they, they know how to handle the situation and usually air traffic control is giving them what to do. Yeah. So they don't need to test that, but I feel like for... General aviation, general aviation definitely. If yeah. you accidentally fly into IMC... You should be able to know how to get yourself out of it. Yeah, yeah. Now it's not that simple, of course, because every IMC condition is different, right? But still, some some ways to be able to get your plane into a safe situation would probably be nice. Yep. So in situations like this where it was pilot error, I mean, some of these things come with the stall stuff, and they were obviously exhibiting that they were attempting to get themselves out of that situation, but they still they they handled the airplane in a different way than it was intended. Correct. And in general aviation, it is rampant. This is a this is a big problem. Gen- yeah, I mean, there's generally there's about 200 incidents per year that end up killing about 300 to 400 people. Right. Which... Just in the United right, States. Right, just in the United States alone. I, I saw a thing, I don't know how official it is, but if, if you were to... If this were to be commercial aviation, that would be a fatal crash every, like, five days. That's not yeah. good. Nope. Right. So the fact that there hasn't been anything really done to prevent that is really scary. Yeah. And the thing is, yes, flying an airplane is really difficult, but if you have the right training and you know what to do, yeah. it's you not... will not kill yourself. Yeah. yeah. I, I know people that have passed away in crashes, of, and it is, it's a tough thing. But One good example any... of that this year was that a lot of people know about is the helicopter crash that Kobe. killed Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Yep, that was IMC flight. 
That's almost almost guaranteed yeah, at he, this point. Uh, they they it is suspected that he flew into IMC and crashed into the side of the hill. He did right. have special VFR permission, right. which we can. Was get he flying? No no, 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 no. I didn't think he so. He had a special pilot, but the pilot we're talking the pilot had the, the right. rating. He had he had special VFR allowance, so he could fly in through these uh, not so great conditions. But he shouldn't have. So um, anyway, the, the guy's name is Dan Greider. He uh, has some videos up. The mostly ones I've watched are on the Aviation 101 channel. Currently, they're posting stuff, but I think two weeks from now they should be finishing up their series. And uh, Steve from Flight Chops. They've all done things about these, and they practice things like rejected takeoffs, you know, power loss immediately after takeoff. Yeah. Like, what happens? What do you do? And not only that, but the pre-flight stuff, going through your briefings, like sitting there, after you know, maybe even before you did your run-up in your little piston aircraft, saying, okay, if we're not off the ground by this point, we're right. going to throttle back, we're going to hit the brakes. Reject we, the takeoff. If we take off and we're below this altitude, we're going to fly between 30 degrees and find a place to land. Yep. If it's above a certain altitude, we're going to return to the airport if we have some sort of power failure. Right. Those are the sorts of things that they're going to, you know, make sure that you brief, that you understand what's going to happen and make sure that you follow that. Mm-hmm. I actually had, because I hear about all sorts of crazy experiences from pilots out at where I work. And uh, we actually had a, a friend of ours, not somebody we were real close with, but, but a friend of ours who had a similar airplane to my dad's who he was in his Cherokee and, went up flying one day and he just finished doing some work on it and he went up flying and all of a sudden started getting smoke in the cockpit immediately after takeoff. And so he immediately turns around to head back for the runway and, you know, he managed to land it on a taxiway and he didn't know that because he couldn't see, couldn't see. but he did everything really, really well. Honestly, he was an older guy, but something had gone wrong in the engine and he, he was basically smoke was pouring into the cockpit. He couldn't see very well and he, he managed to land the airplane safely, thankfully. He declared an emergency, all that. But he, he put it down on a taxiway. And, and uh, you know, it's things like that. Like getting yourself, you find yourself in a situation like that where you can't see, you don't really know where you are, but you need to get this airplane back on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he managed to do that safely. You know, I hear stories like that and it's like, you know, that I'm sure that, that guy is grateful for the training and the experience he's had. Yeah, so I just want to reiterate and, and just drive home the, the point I'm trying to make is that all these airline crashes have made a huge difference in the past. We've learned from them, we've adjusted to them, and now it's not a big issue. They still happen, right? but we still continue to learn from them. In general aviation, that's not the sense that that's going on. That's not the trend. Right. And I, because I've worked in general aviation my whole life, basically, that's what I would like to see change, is I right. want that to, to come to bay. So I, I thought that would be a cool thing to bring up on your podcast. Yeah, that's awesome. So. I would like to do more of these training-type things. Thanks for the little snippet. Yeah. I think everyone enjoys the little extra time to talk about stuff like that. It's important to talk about, because we talk a lot about commercial aviation, because that's what this podcast is geared toward, mm-hmm. but general aviation accidents happen all the time. Yeah. Especially in the United States, where it's such a, a I big have, thing. I have, it's a hobby. Seen, I have seen many, and that is... Nick yeah. and I have actually gone to a crash site like an hour after it happened. Yeah. I mean, it happens around here, or it happens around everywhere, and it is really, really unfortunate, and I... You know, I, I never want to... The only reason we went to that one was because I was worried it was somebody I knew. It and wasn't. It wasn't, thankfully. But it is It is always a concern because I know so many people there. And general aviation is still... It is getting safer. And right. there are quite a few companies that are 
actively working, even though the training and the testing doesn't change. There are quite a few companies, aircraft manufacturers and training facilities, that are changing and adapting to try to make it safer anyways. Right. And I, I, I think it's also worth pointing out, too, that pilots, it's not always pilot air that no. brings down these aircraft, but mm-hmm. it is the majority of it is. general aviation accidents. Yeah. So, All right, guys. That was Air France 296. 296. Thanks for listening to continue to listen because we know it's hard right now because no one's working. It's hard for me to listen to podcasts right now because I don't have really a reason to. So Mm -hmm. I'm running out of podcasts. So if y'all have recommendations, (laughs) please have a great week. We hope everyone's safe and healthy and hopefully the world gets back to normal soon. (laughs) Really hope so. This is our new normal. It I hope to God better not be. <laughs> I oh, want to no. travel again. Me too. All right. Keep, Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. And our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.